The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And send your spirit into every nook and cranny of our minds. Into all the caverns in which we hide things. And send him in there to grab that stuff and bring it out. And heal it. To bring conviction where necessary. To bring healing where necessary. Lord, we know that you don't heal apart from dealing with sin. You heal as you deal with sin. As you deal with the sin that we commit and the sin that we suffer under. You are merciful and gracious to bring these things out and to put your hand on them and fix them. And so I pray, Lord, would you now run through this room and where we need to specifically name things and confess them to you now, do that in our, in our hearts. We want to sit before You and and sit under Your Word and commune over Your Word as forgiven people without any hidden things. So forgive us of our sin now, I pray. And as we turn to this chapter in Deuteronomy, Father, would You give us help from it to fight against sin and to draw up near to You. We want You to take over. We want You to be near us and to have Your way with us and to lift us up on eagles' wings and to give us strength like that. We can't do that well in an adversarial stance towards You. So soften, convict, and deal with sin in us and draw us to You. I don't know where everybody here is. I don't know, I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know where they are in relationship to You. But would You draw us from wherever we are, draw us to You. In saving faith for the first time or again, believing You yet again for Your promises. Father, I pray that You would take this passage and that You would open it up to us in in what is a convicting Word. I pray that You would open it up and as Moses intended it, that it it would be nourishing to us. To help us to hear Your Word. Spirit of God, move through our midst and give us ears to hear. Make us supple people in Your hands. I pray this so that Christ would be honored in our church. So that we could experience all of the blessing and all of the wonder of walking with You through Him by the Spirit. So I say that for the good of this people, would You speak this morning? And for the glory of Your Son, would You speak this morning? Thank You for Your Word. Open it to us now, I pray. In Christ's name, Amen. So we return this morning to the book of Deuteronomy. We come to chapter 32 and to a song. We've been working through Deuteronomy now for quite some time, and over the last several chapters we've seen a continuing combination of information, kind of a looking back and a summary and a looking ahead and a, and a warning that's been woven throughout every chapter over the last several chapters. Moses is, is done with this people. We're going to see in our passage today his, his uh, marching orders, if you will. This is his final moment. And so he is concerned that that the covenant that had just been reiterated and reaffirmed would be remembered and held on to in the future so that the people would not walk away from God, and yet he knows that they are going to. 
The majority will. So he's mixing a review and warning constantly. And today, in chapter 32, we're going to pick up with what he said in chapter 31, that God gave him a song to give to the people. Right along those very lines. Warning and encouragement. So we're going to look at that in chapter 32, a song. But, but as we do so, let me encourage you, don't listen to this as just some sort of interesting rehash of, of you know, the top 40 from a couple thousand years ago. This, it, it is a song, and it was sung down through generations, but it is just as much a song for us. It, it is just as much about you and me as it was about them. Just as much intended to help keep us from presuming upon grace while walking on in sin. It is just as much to encourage us to be diligent in our fight against sin. So what we need to take away from this this morning is is this combination of encouragement and warning. And my hope is that you would hear the warning in this and that you would also be hearing comfort in it. Comfort in the fight against sin. Not comfort in sin. There should not be comfort in sin. There should be a poke and a prod and a stir to fight against sin. And as you fight, there should be comfort. That's what I hope you hear this morning is is warning and, and, and an exhortation and then also an encouragement and a, and a comfort in that exhortation. That's kind of where we're headed this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm going to read the whole passage, and it is a lengthy one. And as I do, depending on what translation you're following along, and you might notice different words here and there than what I say, and it's largely due to the fact that this is poetry. It's a song, and, and even poetry and, and music today, when you're picking words, you're not always picking them for clarity. You're kind of picking them for other reasons, for rhyming and for meter and so there are some difficult words here that translators have struggled to translate, and you may have a different one than I have and when I read it, but it'll be plenty easy to understand the point. So don't worry about that. I'm going to read all of chapter 32, and I'm going to begin actually with the last verse of chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your Father and He will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat 
stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred into jealousy with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them and will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol. Devours the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike. The nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy. Lest their adversaries should misunderstand. Lest they should say our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly, for the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help them. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy, Rejoice with Him, O heavens. Bow down to Him, all gods. For He avenges the blood of His children and takes vengeance on His adversaries. He repays those who hate Him and cleanses His people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, 
Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 32. That's the song, most of it's the song taught by Moses to the people of Israel and to their children and taught as a song so as to aid in its memorization. It's intended to be passed on down through the generations and kept very present. And there's a certain logical flow to it. It begins with God in verses 1 to 4 and describes him as a rock, a term used several times throughout the passage. He is the rock. Steady and unchanging and strong and sturdy in his justice and his faithfulness. Contrast with the people in verse 5 who are the opposite of all of that. Fickle and wavering and unjust. Dealing wickedly with God himself. Something which is all the more alarming given their privileged status which is unpacked in verses 6 to 14. 6 to 14, it points out how they owe their very existence to them. They owe their existence to God. He created them, not in the sense of Genesis 1 creation, like as when God created people, but in a, the creating of a people. Verses 8 and following make really clear. P- picture God overlooking a, a great big table, the, the earth if you will. And on the table there are all kinds of people that he made. And he's saying, as he's reigning over all the earth, this people will go over here, and they will live there, and they will have this. And these ones will go over here, and these ones I assign over here and set the borders of this. These ones, though, I take them for myself. I set them aside to be mine. Not that they were anything to speak of. The Bible is very clear, and Deuteronomy is very clear on this. It was not that he set aside all the best ones for himself. They were a small and insignificant people, wanderers in the desert. They were not more righteous. They were not more numerous. They were not more powerful. The opposite of all of those things. But yet God said, I am deciding to take you out, to choose you, to encircle you, to put my care on you. And make you my portion, my heritage, my special ones. He decided to love them and claimed them and they became his precious people. And then he uses the imagery of of how an eagle would teach its young to fly. It It would throw its young out of a nest and as they kind of fluttered down, would swoop under and catch them and bear them up. Carry them back, do it again teaching this young eagle to fly. God is going to take them like like a young eagle and teach them to fly, mature them, and grow them. He raises up Jacob to maturity and lifts him up to the very high places on the earth and gives him miraculous provision. You can hear the echoes of the land of milk and honey in in those verses. Milk from the flock and and honey out of a rock. It's miraculous. It's such a gracious gift from God. Poured out on Jacob, the special, precious, beloved one. What a gracious God He is towards them. But in 15, it is all met with scorn. Jeshurun, which is a pet name of sorts makes it all the more poignant what he's about to say. He's attaching a pet name to this treachery. Kind of like saying, but my schnookums slept with the neighbor. Ooh. Jeshurun. In the midst of all this great blessing of me calling Jeshurun out. Grew fat and sleek from all the blessing, and then scorned me and forsook the Lord who made him. 
He turned away from the rock of His salvation. The strength that brought Him out of bondage and into the land, He rejected and instead stirred that strength, that rock to jealousy by chasing after all these other gods, the idols of the land who are actually no gods. Get that, they are demons. Not that a rock is a demon, but what lies behind the idol, what lies behind idolatry? Demons. God's adversaries, human beings' adversaries, they hate people. And yet, Jeshurun turns to him and bows down to this demon time after time after time. Arousing God to jealousy as they worship his adversaries. And so how does he respond? Verse 19, he saw it, of course, and provoked, said, well, then I will abandon them. And in 21 and following, in a bit of an ironic pun, says, they have turned to and dealt with and aroused me to jealousy and anger with that which is no God. Well, then I will turn to and deal with and arouse them to jealousy and anger with that which is no people. Meaning, in the context, he's going to call the Gentile nations. This is prophetic. He's speaking about the future. He's going to call the Gentile nations to come and judge his people. He's going to use them in all of their wickedness as an instrument of judgment on his people, Israel. That's spelled out in the following verses, 22 and on. He's going to bring step by step, bit by bit, the curses, which we've seen a number of different times in Deuteronomy already. You can see them echoed here. Fire and plague and pestilence and beasts and warfare. Bit by bit, they're going to grow as the discipline increases and intensifies. And if the people were remotely attuned to what they were doing and what God was doing, they would realize the path they were on and where it led. But, verse 28, they are void of counsel and are completely oblivious to it. If they had knowledge and understanding, they would realize, wait a minute, our rock is not like their rocks. Their their rocks are, are powerless. And yet, they're winning. Why is that? That would only happen if our rock had sold us and abandoned us. And why would he do that? Well, if we had abandoned him. Huh. Mm. There would be an awareness, an alerting to that fact, but there isn't. They just keep on charging ahead. But not forever. There will come a time at some point in the future, he's not specifying, but at some point in the future, verse 34 and following, when the wheels of salvation history will, will work and will turn again, and though these people have been used by God, they are still His adversaries and have been persecuting His people, and things will turn. God always has vengeance on His adversaries at some point. As He waits and stores it up and stores it up and waits and stores it up, there will come a time when what has been laid up will come to pass. 35, vengeance is mine and recompense, repayment. I will give what is owed There will come a time when the calamity that is just awaiting the adversaries of God will be poured out. There will come a time when the people of God who have been preserved, the small remnant, those who did not go after the other gods, they will not be totally wiped out. There will be a small remnant who will say at some point, oh, our strength is gone, and will realize what they've been doing. And at that point, God will have compassion on them. And will vindicate his people. Literally, it says he will judge his people, which does not mean condemn, it just means evaluate. He will judge the case. And will find them saying, Oh, our strength is gone, turning to him. And then he will have compassion on them. Well, he pours out judgment on his adversaries. And he will pour out judgment on his adversaries because this rock. 
This God is no subordinate God. He is the omnipotent one. And He holds absolutely everything and absolutely everyone, every person and every nation and every people group. He holds it all in His hands. Death and life. Healing and wounding. And if ever He raises His hand and says, I will do this, take it to the bank, it will happen. There is no other God other than Him. He will have vengeance on His adversaries. He will repay those who hate Him. What a fearful and dreadful thing it would be to fall into the hands of this living God. But what a wonderful thing it would be to be defended by Him. So 43 pleads, worship Him. Come to Him. Bow down to Him. Rejoice in Him. Do not stand against Him. That is a losing proposition. He is not talking about what He hopes to perhaps do. He's talking about what will happen. So right now, get on the proper side of this equation. Come and bow down to Him and worship Him. For He avenges the blood of His children and takes vengeance on His adversaries. Which side do you want to be on? He turn to the right side of that equation and bow down to Him and worship Him lest He be angry with you. That's the song. In 44 to 47, I'm going to come back to 44 to 47 next week. But in 44 to 47, Moses presses it home on the people and says, take this to heart, this warning. In fact, all the words that I've spoken, all this whole book, take it to heart. It is a warning which must be heeded. You and your children after you. It is not an idle word. It's not an angry God venting. It is life to you. There is blessing on this path. Listen to this. Heed Him. Obey Him. Walk after Him. There is life here. And there is the opposite of life on the other path. Don't walk it. Disobedience has consequences. Of which Moses himself is the final illustration. He's not going into the promised land. They know that. And God, very interestingly, I think, God puts this right here at this point, right at the end of this song, as as the last little illustration of it. Why is Moses not going to experience all the fullness of the blessing of God? Because you broke faith with me and did not regard me as holy among the people. That's what he says explicitly. And so you will not go in, Moses. Now, clearly... Moses is saved. Clearly, Moses walks with God and has walked with God for decades upon decades upon decades. But God's making a point here. There is nobody who is exempt. I'm not talking just about non-Christians. I'm not talking just about baby Christians. There's nobody who's exempt, not even Moses. Sin has consequence. I must be treated as holy. I will not be profaned. That is, treated as common. Not even by Moses. There are serious consequences if you treat me like that. That's the text. Teaching that is assumed, perhaps you might think this, assumed ironically, Verse 2, teaching that is assumed would fall on us like gentle rain. Not a driving hard punishing, but a a gentle rain would fall on us. Like, Like when it rains gently for 12 hours and it just soaks in and everything gets good and saturated. It can rain like crazy like it did a couple weeks ago over the course of 15 minutes and all of that water ends up immediately in the Great Salt Lake. Because it runs right off the street, right into the culvert, right into the river, right into the lake. 
And you dig that deep in your garden, and it's still hard as a rock. But it rained like crazy, and it was driving rain. Not like that, but instead a gentle, soaking rain that would saturate and therefore produce growth. Refreshing and good. Something that is sweet and desirable, right? But don't we most often associate that kind of teaching with kind of light and easy, feel-good sort of stuff? Not with a warning like this. I mean, there's a lot of mm, tough stuff in that passage. And as 46 and 47 say, Moses is clear. This is a warning. He uses the word. Take this warning to heart. It's a warning that would soak into you. How do those things fit together? Well, if you can connect in your mind that this is not a mean God shouting at us because He's mean and angry, but it instead is a word that would be your very life, then any warning against wandering away from that is a warning for your life, which is good. And if you would heed that, you would stay on the path and find life. That's a good thing. the fact. That's, that's the way it is. When we wander away from life, we find trouble. So anything that will keep us on the path is a good thing. And that's what this chapter is about. It's a warning. There's an exhortation here, but I also hope there will be comfort for you here. Because it is primarily a warning, I'm going to begin with the warning. I'm going to make two observations. I'm going to start with the warning. Here's my first observation. Take care not to forsake the God who made us. Take care not to forsake the God who made us the rock of our salvation. The song is predicting what would come to pass, but obviously he's not just intending to inform them. He's He's intending that this would be used, as all these warnings are, that it would be a piece that God uses to preserve the remnant. It says in there he's not going to destroy everybody because God always keeps a little run. The majority is going to go the path of this song. But some will hear the warning in it and won't. It's a warning. So phrase it as a warning. Verse 15, Jeshurun, you are in a special covenant community. In a covenant with God, set apart by Him, living amidst His blessings, experiencing what it is like to be showered with all the abundance that heaven can muster. You are in contact with the God of goodness and righteousness and justice. Don't forget Him. Don't presume upon Him or let Him go or treat Him as profane, as common. Don't give yourself to these other gods, these other idols. Things made with your hands or your minds. That path leads to misery and to sorrow in increasing degrees. Because behind all of them are demons. And down that path is the aroused anger of God. You set yourself against Him and He is always against those who are adversarial. Don't go there. It would be a fearful thing to fall into His hands. Don't go there. Is that not the warning? That's the whole chapter in about two minutes. That's the warning. And that is exactly the same way that the New Testament uses this chapter for us. The New Testament. So don't get confused. We're not talking about some angry Old Testament guy. We're talking about the New Testament Because the New Testament quotes this twice in Hebrews chapter 10. You can jot this down and look at it later if you want. I'm going to skip through it rather quickly. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26, following for a paragraph, writing to the church. It's the New Testament. Writing to the church, to the new covenant community, which carefully is not the same as writing to Christians. You understand that statement? When I speak to the church, by and large, I believe and assume I'm speaking to Christians, but I'm not so foolish as to think that I'm speaking to 100% Christians. 
It's written to the church. But he is not so foolish as to think that he is speaking to, writing to 100% Christians. He's writing to the church, the New Covenant community, those who have said outwardly, verbally, with their lives, in some way have stepped forward and says, yes, we're on board with that, which is different than saying we've actually been born again. There's a difference there. It's important to understand. Because what he says in verse 26 If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, after hearing the gospel and and giving assent to it in some way, receiving it, agreeing with it, if we go on our merry way, walking in sin deliberately, there remains no sacrifice for sin. Nothing else left. You just walk right on by. But what remains? The fire of God poured out on His adversaries. Hear the language of Deuteronomy? We know, don't we, that back in the Old Testament, to to spurn God like that brought trouble? Well, how much more here now in this covenant where you're rejecting the Son of God and grieving the Spirit of God, profaning the Spirit of grace, it says. For we know, and here's the two quotes, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine, I will repay. And the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's in the New Testament to the church. Quoting right out of there. Deuteronomy 32. So what's the point to us? I realize I moved through that quickly, but I think the point is obvious. Take care, church, that you not forsake the God who made you. Take care. Take care that you not claim membership in this covenant and then turn right around and become the Lord's adversary by opposing Him, by breaking faith with Him, by chasing after other gods and giving yourself deliberately to them in sin. Now, like all warning passages, it is not theorizing. Other places do a little bit. Even the next paragraph theorizes a little bit. But in the warning itself, it's not theorizing by saying, Comma, which of course doesn't apply to you because you're a Christian. The point is everybody there assumes they're a Christian. So, so we can't theorize with this. We just need to hear it as it is. Don't go there. This path of forsaking God leads to, at some point down there somewhere, there's a cliff that drops off. Why do you want to be on this path? Don't be. Take care that you not walk that. That's the warning to the church. A warning to us about obedience. We need to think that through a little bit. Obviously, there is a straightforward target here. Presumptuous, high-handed sin. If we go on sinning deliberately, it says. And there may be some here who need to hear that straightforward challenge because you're playing a game. I don't know everybody here. Is that you? Are are you playing a game assuming that you will be and that you are forgiven? Presuming upon His grace. I have met and talked with this people even in the context of ministry here over the last five years. Let alone throughout my life in other different ministry settings. I have met and talked with people who have told me to their to my face that they know they are in sin and they know the decision they are considering is sin, but they are going to do it anyway because they believe it is best and they know God will forgive them. Verbatim. That's their statement. You mock Christ if you do that. And people do it. You profane His blood and outrage His Spirit. Beware. You are standing against Him and He has promised vengeance against His adversaries. When and where, I don't know. But it will come. 
And you are acting very adversarial at the moment, at least. Beware. I don't know if that's you, but I plead with you, do not walk this path. It leads to destruction. It is a lie being sold to you by some smiling, well-manicured demon. Turn. So that is serious and be warned if that's you. But let's broaden this this a little bit because as I thought this through, I don't remember the last time that I blatantly, presumptuously sinned in such a calculating manner. And probably most of us are in that boat with me. Where you've never, you're shocked that, that someone would say something like I just talked about. Let's broaden it just a little bit. Is because we can't just think, well, that's I don't do that, therefore this isn't about me. Yeah, it is. Because the sin under consideration in Deuteronomy is idolatry. And especially an at-ease attitude with idolatry. If you think about it like that, that's all of us. Oh, my. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is not... A stone carved to look like an animal that you bow down to in your living room. It used to be, and in some places in the world still is, but idolatry is giving of yourself to some other thing made with hands or mind that you think will give life. It's the thing that orders you, that, that directs you, that calls you back to it. Idolatry is a problem for all of us. And what is especially a problem in this context here is the at-ease attitude with idolatry. Knowing that it's there, but treating it, frankly, how we treat a lot of laws in our society. If I'm walking down the street, I know I'm supposed to cross at the crosswalk. There aren't any cars coming. I cross here. Who in the world is going to write me a ticket for that? That's how we very often, very often, very often treat the law of God. That's not a big deal. God is not going to get all bent of shape about that. So we presume. An at-ease attitude with sin, with idolatry. What are the idols in your life? I don't know. It would take me forever to list them. Some are very subtle. Many of them are actually good and fine things that have just come out of place. Work. Work is a gift of God and an idol for tons of people. Because you live for it. Finding in it what actually fills your heart, what you think you need. Approval from other people. Money in your pocket. But work is a good thing, and we have to go to work, and God gives work. Is that an idol or not? Yes. I don't know if it's your idol. It can be mine sometimes. If you want to look for idols in your life, look for the things that you get irritated about when you lose, or when you can't get, or that you'll sin to get. Those might be indicators that something has a hold of you. And an at-ease attitude, rather than a fighting against it, is a problem. It arouses the real God to jealousy. Like a man on a date with his wife, holding her hand, checking out the waitress. It arouses him to jealousy. Jeshurun. Brothers and sisters, sin carries consequences, maybe extreme consequences, maybe a high-handed, presumptuous sin. It might be a mark. You are not actually saved. You are running towards the precipice. And maybe on the other hand, the consequence of breaking faith with God is that you'll never quite experience all of the blessing 
of all of the intimacy with Him that you could have. And you just have to stand and look at it from a distance. I don't know. And, and the point is not to try to determine. The Bible never has to do this. Determine this sin in this amount over this long of time equals that. It's just a warning. Don't go there. Turn. Turn to Him. Take care not to forsake the God who made you. Holiness matters for us. As a people, as a church, it matters. So don't turn away from Him. Don't forsake Him. Now, how do we do that? That takes us to the, the second observation. We hear the warning. How can we be helped in our response to it? Well, we follow the text. What led to the problem of forsaking God? Verse 18 is very clear. Though they had all this blessing from God, they were unmindful of the rock that bore them and forgot the God who gave them birth. Not literally, of course, if they had no recollection. Somebody were to say Yahweh and they'd say, who? No, that's not what he means by forgot. He means unmindful, overlooked, moved on past, did not have him in prime place in the heart. It wasn't near the surface. It was buried down there somewhere, unmindful of him. And so, they forsook Him. So, work that back. How do you not forsake Him? Here's the second observation. Remember the glorious rock of your salvation. Remember the rock of your salvation in all of His glory, which is where the song begins. And it's laced all throughout He is the Lord of glory, the rock for His people. And Moses and all after him who would sing this begins this song saying, I I hope this will soak into you, that it will water your soul and produce growth in you. And so he begins, I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. In other words, I have something very important to teach you and to teach your children. And if it would pass down through generations, it would produce growth in you. So here we go. God. I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to Him. Lest we forget Him. He is great and glorious as the rock of righteousness. Verse 4, then goes on to describe Him. He is perfect in everything and in every conceivable way. All that He does and all that He is is just and holy and pure and faithful. He is righteous. He is good. He is the thing that this world and that your heart needs. Oh, He is so good. Ascribe greatness to Him, Jeshurun. Declare to Him how good He is and to each other how good He is. And sing also of Him as the rock of supreme sovereignty. Later in the song, it talks about how everything that He says will happen will happen because He is the only one who reigns. He holds all power and all authority in His hand. Ascribe that great omnipotence to Him. Say it to Him and to each other. But what gets the most attention here? What gets the most space in the song? He is the rock of salvation. As verse 15 calls Him. The strong one who saved his people, which is the idea that's tied to all of the language about birthing and creating and making. He took a people from nowhere who were nothing and made them everything. By his power, righteously he did that. This is who he is. Ascribe this greatness to him. But lest we think it is just abstract truth. Or that He is this righteous rock, this sovereign, supreme rock, this saving rock. For those people way back there, verse 21 tells us this is about you if you are a Christian. 
Verse 21, the stuff about the other nations. Originally, talking about how he's going to call the nations who arouse the jealousy of his people with his judgment. Paul, in Romans 10, jot it down. You can read Romans 10 and 11 later. Paul quotes this verse and elaborates on another way that God's going to use no people. He's going to arouse jealousy with those who are no people by grafting them into the tree of Abraham and making them a people. He's going to make them a people. This is about you. Christian, this is about you. He is your rock. He is the rock of your salvation who made you, not at Mount Horeb, but at the Mount of Calvary. He pulled you out of a howling wasteland of a desert and made you the apple of His eye. Such a term of endearment. The one that He's fond of. The precious and special one that He holds dear to Him. That He has encircled and cared for and said, this one is mine, my portion, my heritage. The one whom I love, I suckle this one. Nursing, what a tender term. The pet name Jeshurun. These are mine. He has done something amazing for you, Christian. At the cross, when He made you His. And made us His. It's an amazing thing. And even, even if we and as we sin, and even if we and as we walk through His discipline, even then, He is dealing with you. He's dealing with you graciously and kindly in love. It is hard to comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for His people. Hard to comprehend that, which is why Paul in Ephesians twice prays, asks God to help His people understand this. Oh, would you give them strength, God, that they would understand how wide and long and high and deep is your love for them. May the Spirit give you strength now to, that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. For you, Christian. Sometimes I realize we presume upon this love, but I want to poke at the reality that sometimes we struggle to comprehend it. And to believe it. And to live in light of it. Struggle to regard it as important as it really is. Do you you realize, I think, brothers and sisters, and I realize that Some here are not my brothers and sisters, and I plead with you, come. Come to Christ. But most of you are brothers and sisters. If we could actually live mindful of, not forgetting, mindful of and believing the the breadth of God's love for you and it filled up your heart, what would happen? Well, What's going on when you're chasing the idol? You're looking for something. If you had the love of God filling up your heart, there's nothing to look for. You've got it all. Filled the fullness of all of God. There's some temptation, some offer. You're lacking something that I can give you. No, I'm not. My heart is full of the love of God for me. And He is Everything. He is everything good and everything righteous and everything perfect. And He is that for me. I don't lack. Intellectually, you know this. But we so struggle to live it. So struggle to believe it. If you're filled with the love of God, you'd be freed from chasing love in all the wrong places. 
filled with hope and with gladness and you'd have something to give away to others. As simplistic as this is, Christian, God loves you. That is not complex, but it's really hard. But it's not complex. God loves you. You understand all those words. But I mean it like really. And at the cross, but beyond the cross today and tomorrow, because of the cross today and tomorrow, and and because of the cross in the future and on into eternity, He is in the process and He is going to even more so be in the process of delivering you. He vindicates His people. He has compassion on His saints and His servants. There is a marvelous beauty in this. That I struggle to communicate. You can probably tell I struggle to communicate this. But there is something here in this love of God that if it would get into us, would so settle us. It would give you the sense of, even while you're walking around, a sense of, I am the dearly beloved apple of His eye. What have I on earth that I desire and lack and must strive after. So I plead and I pray, would you remember this and would you soak in it? He is the rock of your salvation. And would you put yourself around the Word of God and the people of God who will help soak you in it? Will help you will cause you to, to look at the marvelous, glorious goodness of your God. Who will encourage you when you find yourself in sin to say, my strength is gone. I do not trust in myself. To give up to Him. Find Him swooping in to lift you up and carry you. He is the rock of your salvation. Don't forget it. So that you won't forsake Him. That's the main point for this morning. He's the rock of your salvation. Don't forget it. So that you won't forsake Him. And right now I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm not going to close in prayer quite yet. Nathan's going to come up and he's going to play just some instrumental music. And I'm going to ask you to pray, just yourself, maybe with your spouse or friend or children or parents, wherever you're sitting next to if you want to. But I'm going to ask you to pray and maybe something that was said here has, has caused you to think, I have something I need to deal with God. I need to repent of something. Some particular thing. I need to repent of the habit of not fighting sin, of being at ease with it. Or maybe what you want to do is you want to say, God, help me. Would you give me grace to comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is your love of me? Because I know that, but I don't think I know that. Whatever it is that you need to pray about, take a minute or two or three and pray, and then I'll come back up here and I'll, and I'll close this in prayer. So pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 
South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.